Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Benjamin Ashwell. I'm from Chicago, and I'm the winner of the first When Diplomacy Fails Lottery. In the spirit of tireless self-promotion, I want to mention that my brother and I just released a podcast called Talking History, The Italian Unification, 1790-1870. to You can find us on the iTunes store or at TalkingHistoryPodcast.com. Now, Zach, I'd love to hear your take on the War of Greek Independence. My heart is broken by the terrible loss I have sustained in my old friends and companions and my poor soldiers. Believe me, nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. The Duke of Wellington Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 23, The Greek War of Independence. This time we're taking something of a step back from the late medieval period of European history and we'll cover what is certainly an important period in its own right. If you enjoy this episode especially, you should take a look at some of my previous episodes that focused on this era. I've often said that When Diplomacy Fails isn't meant to be a chronological podcast, but you can make it be one if you're really that OCD, like I am. So for the record, episode 10, that special on Napoleon, then episode 14, the War of 1812, Then this one we're doing here, then episodes 11, 17, and 18, which cover the Mexican-American, Austro-Prussian, and Russo-Turkish War of 1877, respectively, will bring you up to date appropriately. If you're really feeling adventurous, you can conclude with the World War I special, though you should probably listen to the episodes that cover the background to that special first, so those would be the episodes... You know what? Just listen to my entire podcast back catalogue again. There, that should bring you up to speed. The year I will bring you to now is 1821. The day is March 25th, and the Orthodox Bishop Germanus of Patras has just proclaimed a national uprising in Greece against their Ottoman masters. The Ottoman Empire had been changed and challenged radically since its capture of Constantinople on the 29th of May, 1453. At that time, the Turkish threat was considerable, 
and the Ottoman Empire would go on to significantly expand into Eastern, South and Southeast Europe in the years after. Reaching as far as the gates of Vienna numerous times, only to be turned back for the final time in the Great Turkish War of 1683-1699, in which Poland, Venice and Austria gained immensely at the expense of the Ottomans, meant that by the dawn of the 18th century, the Ottoman threat to Europe appeared to have passed. Plagued for the next century by internal division and border wars with Austria and Russia, and menaced further by internal requests for secession and sovereignty within their own lands, particularly from Egypt, the Ottoman state was a shadow of its former imperial, terrifying glory by the time Napoleon landed in Egypt in 1804, lands which were still officially under the suzerainty of Ottoman Turkey. Napoleon's attempts to seize Egyptian land were highly symbolic, as were his crushing defeats of a seemingly archaic Ottoman army in numerous recurring battles. 1804 was also the year of the Serbian Revolution, in what marked the beginning of a national awakening within the Balkans, culminating in the assassination of Franz Ferdinand 110 years later. The Balkan nationalism spread to Greece too, so that by the early 1820s Greece itself appeared, not for the first time, to be on the brink of revolt once again. And when the Orthodox bishop Germanus of Patros proclaimed a national uprising for all Greeks, the Ottoman forces returned to crush a rebellion they had crushed so many times before. This time though, the results would be different, because this time, the world was watching. The final collapse of the Byzantine Empire, descendant of the Roman Empire and ruler of what was the Eastern Roman Empire for almost 1,000 years, occurred on the 29th of May 1453, when Constantinople fell at last to the Turkish invaders. The Turks had spent years building up a presence in the surrounding regions, to the extent that by 1450, Constantinople itself was all that remained of the once mighty Byzantines. On that day, May 25th, 1453, some historians claim that everything to do with Rome and Roman empires came to an end after over 2,000 years with at least some form of Roman empire in the region. Thus the date is highly significant and is imprinted on my memory for the additional reason that from that day onward, the Turks began to pose a threat to the rest of the European and known world. The Feliki Iteria, or Society of Friends, was an underground Greek organisation committed to the creation of an independent Greek state and the removal of the Ottoman rule over their country. Douglas Dakin, in his book The Greek Struggle for Independence, 1821-1833, notes on the formation of this movement. Quote, Three Greeks belonging to the commercial class, Athanasios Sakhalov, son of a fur dealer in Moscow, Nikolaus Skoufos, a merchant of Odessa, and Emmanuel Xanthos, agent of the Merchant House of Zenos, were attempting to recruit members for a society they had founded in Odessa in 1814. In the autumn of 1814, Skoufos and Sakhalov drew up a plan of organisation consisting of four grades of membership and providing for a supreme authority or central committee, composed of several persons whose identities were to be kept secret. Later, they drew up a more elaborate scheme, and chose for the name of their society, Felice Eteria. End quote. Upon founding such a movement, its members attempted to leverage support in what they hoped would be sympathetic states such as Russia, where a large Greek diaspora lived and where the Orthodox religion was a shared trait of Greek and Russian citizens. However, when Felice Eteria arrived in Moscow, they found a conflicted Tsar and incredulous ministers. 
of particular interest within the Russian cabinet of ministers was Ionus, or John Kapodistrius, a Greek who shared the post of Russian foreign minister with Count Nesselrod from the post-Napoleonic settlement towards the mid-1820s. Kapodistrius would in fact become Greece's first head of state in 1828, after finally returning to his homeland earlier in that year. However, Douglas Dakin explains that Kapodistrius, a legend in European politics following his achievements in reacquiring Swiss independence from the French, was initially highly sceptical of the efforts of the Felicia and the attempts of that society's newest recruit, Nicolaus Galatis, in winning him over to the society's side. Quote, From Odessa, the young Galatis rode to Kapodistrius in St. Petersburg, asking to see him and saying he had a most important announcement to make to him. This approach evidently alarmed Kapodistrius, who probably assumed that some Greek conspiracy was afoot. At the same time, he was busy along with Nesselrod in trying to carry out faithfully the Tsar's policy of maintaining Russian influence in the peaceful Europe while hoping nevertheless to bring the Tsar around to a firmer policy vis-à-vis the Ottoman Empire. Galatus duly arrived in St. Petersburg, wearing the uniform of the Ionian National Guard and styling himself a count. His appearance and manner convinced Kapodistrius that he was nothing more than an adventurer. He allowed him to speak. Galatus said that he had been sent by a secret society that planned to free the Greeks from the Turkish yoke. He was sent to ask Kapodistrius to become the chief of that society and direct its activities. At that point, Kapodistrius cut him short, saying, Anyone, sir, who thinks of such an undertaking must be mad. The only advice I can give you is to not speak to anyone else about this and return immediately to the place you have come from and to tell those who sent you that if they wish to avoid destroying themselves and dragging down with them the whole of their innocent and unfortunate race, they must renounce their revolutionary activities and continue to live under the government which they find themselves until the Almighty shall decide otherwise. End quote. From this, we can see that the early efforts of the society were not successful. Indeed, they had only recruited about 10 members to their secret group by 1818, and one of the group's founders, Nicolaus Scophus, died that same year. In April 1818, the society transformed their HQ from Odessa to Constantinople, so as to make coordinating Greek movements easier, while also making them that much riskier, being under the Ottoman's nose. Before Scophus had died, though, he threw the society a lifeline, reorganising its committee and recruitment policies so as to make the processes more streamlined, and he settled on an apostolic model, whereby 12 reps from the society would each hold sway over a particular area. Dakins explains how this policy manifested itself. Quote, They chose 12 worthy men, each of whom was to take charge of recruitment in a specific area. Among these were several old Russian and Greek statesmen. End quote. Dakins then goes on to list the 12 men and their respective areas. But rather than bombard you with names I'll mispronounce, and which aren't important in the grand scheme of things anyway, I'll simply list off the places where each rep was meant to cover, to give you an idea of the scope of the Felicaeteria. They had a rep for, in local Greek lands, the Ionian and Aegean Islands, Macedonia and Thrace, Mani and Messinia, Epirus, the Peloponnese, and the Principalities. They also had a rep for, in international territories, Cyprus and Egypt, Serbia, Bulgaria, Russia and Italy. So far flung was the Greek diaspora that the society obviously thought it worth their while to invest resources in recruiting native Greeks in foreign lands. However, what the society perhaps didn't anticipate was the practical explosion of Greek patriotism and romanticism from non-Greeks across the Western world. But we'll come to that a bit later.
the Felicae Eteria began to achieve success because of its new organisation, and soon many Greeks, be they foreign or local, were committed to the eventual goal of independence. It is difficult to understand the success of the society unless we properly examine the social makeup of the Greeks themselves. Don't worry, it's actually pretty interesting. Douglas Dakins continues his account of the Greeks, with a revealing extract I found incredibly surprising. Quote, Although the Greek language survived, those that spoke it, except for a small band of scholars, had no notion of a classical Greece or of the Hellenistic civilization of Roman times. And although the Greeks called themselves Romans and their language Romanica, although moreover they were subject in the ecclesiastical courts to Roman law, they had no conception that the land they had occupied had been the home of the great cities that the Roman legions had once taken over from the ancient Greeks. The classical ruins that lay around them must indeed have been objects of myth and wonder. They were, however, quite unintelligible to the early modern Greeks. The great cities had decayed during the turmoils of the breakup of the Greco-Roman world. Athens, Corinth, and Thebes had become squalid townships. Sparta had disappeared completely. The trade and industries of the ancient world had sunk into almost insignificance, and agriculture had declined to a level of subsistence. By that time, in as far as the Greeks had any relationship with the ancient world, that relationship can be traced only through the Byzantine church. End quote. So with their leadership in disarray, and a population who were not entirely aware of Greece's past, at least not to the extent that we are today, how did the society manage to gain the widespread support of so many Greeks? For this, it is perhaps Napoleon who deserves the most praise, a point echoed by Alan Cunningham in his academic article entitled The Philhellenes, Canning and Greek Independence, in which Cunningham writes, quote, Napoleon, then, however indirectly, is to be seen as one of the founders of the modern Greek state. Though this was no more his intention than it was Hitler's, by his bestiality of the Jews, to promote the cause of Israel. Besides deflecting travellers to the Balkans, Napoleon was himself very interested in the prospects of Oriental Empire, as he showed by his occupations of Egypt and the Ionian Islands, by his correspondence with Ali Pasha of Janina, and his resourceful diplomacy in Istanbul and beyond. He stirred this simmering, international altercation known as the Eastern Question, which was formerly and predominantly a Russian preoccupation, abetted by Austria and, intermittently, resisted by France. In the years immediately after 1815, there was some hope in England that the Eastern Question might go away, and the Foreign Minister, Castlereagh, experimented with a complying policy, which was deferential to the prior interest of Russia in the fate of the Ottoman Empire. End quote. The Greeks of 1821 were not the same as the Greeks of 1750, because they had lived through the time of the Enlightenment, and though it came later to Greece itself, the wealthier Greek merchants and bankers and influentials sent their sons to be educated in France, Italy or the German states, granting them the education and thus the knowledge that was so lacking from the rest of the Ottoman Empire. The fact that so many wealthy Greek Christians also lived in the places where universities in Greece were prevalent is no coincidence either. Ioannina, Chios, Smyrnia, and Avalik were all simultaneously centres of commerce and learning, because those Greeks who had come from wealthy families in the first place returned home and taught what they had learned then to a local Greek audience. This spread the education forward and enabled better educated Greeks to acquire better, more well-paid jobs in the empire than their Muslim counterparts. So the Greeks had the tools in the form of education and wealth. What about the mission? 
Well, those Greeks who received an education obviously came into contact with lessons about their classical and early medieval past, but something else was passed on to the Greek diaspora studying abroad that was more important than history. Patriotism. This patriotism manifested itself in first the desire to acquire a measured form of independence, such as that seen by Egypt, and then the desire to acquire a complete break from the Ottoman Empire itself, once the Feliki Eteria began to express more radical goals. Now that's not to say that the Greeks had not revolted before. In the previous centuries, disorganised revolts had sprang up, and, if under the indirect or direct support of foreign powers, these revolts could drag on for years. What separated the Greek War of Independence in 1821 was not only the fact that it was successful, but that it unified the Greeks behind ideas, not just of mere independence for the sake of it, but because Greece had a fundamental, nationalistic and patriotic right to exist as a sovereign state. Adamantios Kores, Rigas Pharaios and Neophytos Ducas were all key Greek figures inspired by the Enlightenment. Without those figures for moral, philosophical or practical support, it is hard to imagine how the Felice Eteria, and thus an independent Greece, would have ever materialised at all. Thus, the Enlightenment can be seen as a key factor in influencing Greeks towards dreaming of a grand Greek destiny, based out of the proud centuries of history they had had as a cultural, linguistic and economic force. Douglas Dakins continues his narrative of the Felice Eteria's success. Quote, from the ample but incomplete records of enrolment, it is clear that by early 1820, the Eterists had enrolled hundreds of leading Greeks, merchants from the widely scattered Greek commercial centres, intellectuals who were steeped in the ideas of the European Enlightenment and the French Revolution, some of whom had seen service as privateers during the Napoleonic Wars, teachers, parish priests, monks, and even certain higher clergy. End quote. Now to the international situation. What did the other powers think of this newfound Greek desire for independence? Did they see it merely as history repeating itself, i.e. as the Greeks launching yet another hopeless revolt? Or did they recognise that this time, Greece really could be free? Upon the defeat of Napoleon and the withdrawal of France, at least temporarily, from the world stage, it was Britain and Russia who largely conducted foreign policy on a scale that really mattered. Certainly, Britain's post-Napoleonic achievements are world famous today an industrial revolution before anyone else, the extension of their empire across the known world, the successful exploration of Africa, the scientific advances and medicinal discoveries, the technological advances and general international explosion of prestige, all were the fruits of a state and empire which had established itself as the world power. But what of Greece? Interference in Greek affairs, on whatever scale, would surely draw the ire of the Ottomans. Was it sound policy to irk the Ottomans? Certainly Russia and Austria believed so, with tension often arising due to their common borders with the Turks. The Russians had only fought the Ottoman Empire in the 1770s, and Greece had risen in revolt to coincide with such a war and aid their Orthodox Russian brethren. But could such occurrences really be expected to happen again? Furthermore, was an independent Greece even desirable? Was the status quo not profitable enough for Britain as it stood? Would the addition of a new Greek state, independent of Ottoman power, complicate Britain's foreign policy? What if that Greek state remained, as it was expected to do, squarely in the Russian camp? Could Britain's Mediterranean interests be properly protected? Britain was not the only power contemplating intervention in Greek affairs, though. Russia was another key power who the society wanted on their side 
and who most of its members strongly suspected would tacitly support their cause once the war broke out. In actual fact, Russia did not commit to a war with Turkey in support of Greece until 1828, over six years after the initial revolt had begun. Douglas Dakins gives a two-pronged explanation as to the expectations of the Greek separatists and why the Feliki Eteria appeared to enjoy such a groundswell of support. Quote, the chief reason for the success of the Eterists in pre-mobilizing the Greek nation was that they created the impression that their movement was sponsored by Russia, that the leader was none other than Cappadistrius, and that the whole uprising had the blessing of the Orthodox Patriarch. To all and sundry, the enrollment of Russia's consuls appeared to prove that the hidden hand was Russia's. But neither the Tsar nor Cappadistrius had any liking for the Eteria. The Tsar had no wish to become involved in a war against the Turks, and Cappadistrius was under strict orders to not allow Eastern affairs interfere with Russia's Western policies. End quote. However, despite this apparent international reluctance, there was a huge admiration for all things Greek in the Western world. Philhellenism was the name given to the appreciation of everything Greek, be it in culture, literature, politics, philosophy or history, and this manifested itself in a growing desire among those who came to identify with it, such as the British, French, German and Russian populations, to see Greece achieve independence for itself. Thus, Philhellenism must be seen as a hugely significant thing during this period, because even without their government's consent, individuals from various states still ventured to Greece during its rebellion in order to aid its transition from subject to sovereign state. Obviously, this is a time frame where an insane amount of diplomacy occurs, which is why it's so fortunate that I get to cover this war in the first place. Virginia Penn, in her academic article entitled Philhellenism in Europe, 1821-1828, notes on the phenomenon of Philhellenism, and how it affected the policy of European states and their dealings with either Greece or the Ottoman Empire. Quote, Philhellenism was a phenomenon which appeared in different countries at different times throughout the 18th century, but at no time has it been so widespread and intense as during the Greek Revolution in the 19th century. The birth of a nation, or even the rebirth, is undoubtedly a most dramatic and appealing moment, yet there were circumstances peculiar to the times that made Europeans acutely sensitive to revolution, and many of them more sympathetic to the Greek than to that of other nations. Greece was indebted to Metternich and the Holy Alliance, to her own ancestry and classical traditions of European culture, and to the strong Christian element in early 19th century civilization. End quote. While Alan Cunningham, in his article The Philhellenes, Canning and Greek Independence, notes his own take on Philhellenism and provides an amusing anecdote regarding a one Dr. Walsh, chaplain to the British Embassy in Istanbul. Quote, Philhellenism was a craze, a game, a sentimental journey, a profoundly moving act of homage, a state of mind, a fad, an affectation. It was for the educated and the affluent, with the appropriate classical texts and possibly compass, measuring staffs and notebooks as well, one travelled in Greece and the islands, identifying, verifying and measuring sites and ruins, in general marvelling at the accuracy of the classical record or finding gratifying points of detail where it went wrong. Without becoming more enmeshed in the enthusiasms and prejudices of these people and their activities than is necessary for present purposes, the journeys of Dr. Walsh, chaplain to the British Embassy in Istanbul, may be touched upon as typical. 
being well-read, Walsh knew, before he descended into the caverns on the island of Paros that had been described by Pliny, Pocinius, and Strabo. Being a romantic, his prose was quite overwhelmed at times by his exalted state of mind, so that, instead of merely recording that he strolled back to his lodging near the supposed site of Troy at sunset, he wrote, I set out to return, by about the same time that Priam left the city to proceed to the Greek camp to beg the body of Hector. End quote. If you'll forgive me while I go off on something of a tangent now, I just always found it fascinating that the idea that people living in the same place as a once great empire, and indeed generally being descendants of that same empire, would often gaze in wonder at the works and ruins left over by what may well be their ancestors, yet have no recollection or understanding of their use. It's a comparable situation to the so-called Dark Ages of Europe, when depressed and destitute peasants in a violent and unrelentingly lawless society must have looked at the ruins of Roman aqueducts and amphitheatres and wondered where they had all gone wrong, or discovered the ruins of baths with their underfloor heating and superior architecture and suggestions of extreme plenty and lamented or imagined at who had constructed such works. Certainly it seems as though the Greeks themselves, with minimal education unless sent abroad, had little genuine ideas about what their ancient or Byzantine past meant for Greece and Greek ideas of nationalism as a whole. However, as Cunningham writes, this did not stop foreign travellers there from trying to see the characteristics of the ancient Greeks in the lives of the subject Ottoman Greeks. Quote, Byron, we are told, loved the Mediterranean people despite their faults and foibles, and refused to be upset because Greek peasants and village schoolmasters no longer construed Greek as English university men thought they should. This is not quite the message of the travel literature of the period. Numerous writers, before Byron as well as after him, were quite fascinated by the living Greeks, and went to rather absurd lengths to find resemblances, of character, as well as physiognomy, between them and their ancient ancestors." End quote. This Byron that Cunningham writes of is perhaps the most important and influential Philhellene of his day. George Gordon Byron, usually just referred to as Lord Byron, was a seriously complicated British poet, adventurer and aristocrat. It is widely suspected today that he suffered from depression, was bipolar and carried out incestuous affairs with at least one of his half-sisters. Of course, what else are you going to do except gossip when you're an aristocrat? But Byron genuinely seemed to have a love for Greece and the Greek people, to the extent that he packed up everything and left to join the Greek cause in its early phase. This wouldn't have mattered too much, except that Byron was quite the expert with the pen, and began to construct sweeping epics covering Greek dreams for independence, which were in turn read by a British public mostly sympathetic to the Greek cause. Some of his most famous works include the incredibly powerful poem, known colloquially as, That Greece Might Still Be Free. The mountains look on Marathon, and Marathon looks on the sea, and musing there an hour alone, I dreamed that Greece might still be free. For, standing on the Persian's grave, I could not deem myself a slave. Must we but weep o'er days more blessed? Must we but blush our fathers bled? Earth, render back from out thy breast, a remnant of our Spartan dead. Of the three hundred grant but three, to make a new Thermopylae. However, even despite this investment, Britain had still not given its tacit support for the revolt when it erupted on March 25, 1821. 
but what of Britain's former colony in America? With regards to America's role in the coming Greek revolt, Angela Repoussi, in her academic article entitled The Cause of the Greeks, Philadelphia and the Greek War of Independence, 1821-1828, sets a good background. Quote, In the spring of 1821, after nearly 400 years of Turkish rule, the Greeks of the Peloponnesus rose in rebellion. In the United States, the dreams of the Greek Revolution evoked strong emotions. Americans were drawn to the Greeks for a number of reasons. For one, the Greeks were fellow Christians, engaged in a veritable holy war of survival against their Muslim oppressors. National pride, which fueled a burgeoning commitment to the dissemination of Republican ideology, formed another source of pro-Greek thought. Having themselves risen from tyranny, Americans were not indifferent to another people striving to achieve the same liberties they had fought for and maintained. Prior to 1821, no revolution captured the public imagination or aroused U.S. sympathy and benevolence more than the Greek uprising of 1821-32. The interest in Greek affairs coincided with a dramatic increase in classical studies a fact which manifested itself in a revival of Greek architecture in the burgeoning American state. Philadelphia saw the construction of a second bank of the United States, modelled in fact on the Parthenon in Athens. It was completed in 1824 and speaks volumes about the admiration many Americans had for Greece. However, despite the creation of many Friends of Greek societies in various American cities, few Americans felt strongly enough to actually contribute much. To understand why, one must take into consideration the foreign policy of America in the 1820s. Significant milestones, such as the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, suggested to the old world of Europe that any intervention in the newly created independent South American states would incur the wrath of this America. Whether or not America was realistically capable of actually preventing such an intervention from any 19th century power from Europe is of course up for debate in itself but what was not up for debate was the clear implications of this doctrine. If America would not allow a former European master to intervene in the affairs of a newly sovereign former colony, then how would an American intervention in a Greek subject state look to the rest of the world? If America publicly and officially declared itself for Greece and sent a large contingent of men to the continent, not only would that ruffle the feathers of pretty much everyone, be logistically difficult and very expensive, but it would also go against what Americas had come to see as their traditional role in world affairs, that of a conservative, peace-loving arbiter of justice that held democratic free principles and liberty closest to heart and state policy. It would take until the war with Spain some 70 years later in 1898 for this policy to completely and radically change. But if America would not get involved in ideological grounds, perhaps it would on spiritual or humanitarian grounds. Angelo Repoussi notes on the U.S. course of action, quote, Emphasis was placed on obtaining subscriptions strictly for the relief of private distress. What is more, proponents of the Greeks no longer appealed on behalf of classical recollections or alluded to ancient heroes. Such arguments, it seemed, failed to have much impact with most middle and lower class citizens. Making more effective use of Christian and humanitarian pleas, sponsors were able to elicit a more universal response. This development towards a more humanitarian policy is indicative of the growing importance of moral, religious and humanitarian concerns for a large number of Americans during the early 19th century. 
During these years, Americans witnessed a proliferation of benevolent, charitable and religious organizations formed for the express purpose of spreading personal, political, intellectual and moral improvement. Imbued with a special sense of destiny and mission, many philanthropists believed they had a duty to lead, by example and instruction, towards a better world. End quote. And Angelo continues on the significance of the Greek Revolution for American policy. Quote, the significance of the Greek Revolution was that it plunged American benevolence into an international arena. As humanitarianists began to address social problems at home, they were naturally drawn to the idea of helping to alleviate similar hardships abroad. That the Greeks professed Christianity and sought to establish a government based on similar democratic principles only enhanced the worthiness of their cause in the eyes of American philanthropists. End quote. Perhaps one of the biggest handicaps towards what America could realistically do was the very real fact that Greece was so far away. In the 19th century, when steam power was barely in its infancy, a sail-powered journey across the Atlantic took only slightly less time than it had done centuries before, and there was no reason to suggest, especially to those Americans who were less informed of technological advances, that the situation would or could soon change. The distance problem also meant that getting credible information about the events unfolding in Greece proved very difficult after 1821. Indeed, because most news Americans received would have been filtered through the other European networks, it is highly probable that Americans only got mere snippets of info as the greater events in the revolution unfolded. Angelo then explains another important issue to take into consideration the problem Americans had with properly trusting the motives of other European powers. Quote, Another important consideration that contributed to the passivity of the citizenry was the uncertainty surrounding the role that European powers might play in resolving the conflict. There were those who felt that by reasons of proximity, the governments of Europe should be responsible for bringing order to Greece. Contemporary observers, such as the well-known Philadelphia author, publisher and philanthropist Matthew Carey, looked upon European disregard for the oppression and magnanimous Greeks with great indignation. Carey and others, however, were not confident that the European powers, particularly Russia, were capable of acting selflessly. Citing Russia's historic territorial ambitions in the region, many felt that Russian intervention would ultimately bring about Greece's incorporation into a new Russian empire. Thus, with the Greeks seemingly destined to lay their trophies at the feet of Tsar Alexander for his disposal, any assistance to the Greek cause would be folly. Some Americans became resigned to the fact that Greece would simply be exchanging one form of dictatorship for another, albeit a more Christian and supposedly more humane one. End quote. Finally, Angelo notes further the international complications that went along with aiding Greece. Quote, for Kerry, the only chance to stave off Russian territorial aggrandizement rested on the intervention of England, but he was sceptical that Britain would align itself on the side of liberty. There were those who accused the British secretly of aiding the Turks in order to ensure the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire and thus maintain it as a bulwark against Russian expansion. Phil Hellenes soon came to the unhappy realization that Greece could expect nothing from the heartless European governments because of their entangling alliances and chimerical balance of power. But while the European cabinets were content, for the moment, to remain aloof from the struggle in Greece, there were certain voices in the United States that were not ready to abandon the Christian Greeks to massacre and murder. End quote. 
Only 30 years later, the American suspicions would prove right with regards to Britain. As Britain chose to support the by then ailing Ottoman Empire in the Crimea against Russia in order to halt Russia's expansion. But Britain, as far as its strategic concerns over Russia that would emerge in later decades, saw first the plight of the Greeks, and it became increasingly difficult to Britain, as it did for the rest of Europe, to ignore this plight, even with the apparent strategic interests Britain and other Europeans had to bear in mind. Privately, Britain and Austria's governments, particularly their foreign ministers, agreed that maintaining the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire should be their primary concern. Besides, it was expected that the Ottomans would soon crush the Greek uprising, as they had many times in its various forms before, in a few years, if not a few months. This is a point echoed by Douglas Dakin in his already much-cited book, The Greek Struggle for Independence, 1821-1833. Quote, In their different ways, all were... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We're waiting on time and providence. Throughout 1821 and 22, Metternich was certainly expecting the Turks, if left alone, to restore their authority by force. Podcast footnote. Metternich was perhaps the most important and influential politician in Europe during the post-Napoleonic era. Charged with crafting the post-war accords Europe now operated by, it was Metternich, as chief foreign minister of Austria, who was Britain's most firm supporter in their policy vis-à-vis Russia, and whose conservative foreign policy would, Metternich hoped, preserve Austria's primacy and prevent a Russian explosion of power in the Ottoman lands. End podcast footnote. This too is the expectation of the British ambassador at Constantinople, Lord Strangford, who continued to press the Turks to give some satisfaction to the Russians so that a Russo-Turkish war might be avoided. But whereas Strangford had proposed that the European powers should summon the Greeks to unconditional surrender, Kassari, less anti-Greek and less pro-Turk, much preferred a policy of strict neutrality. He rebuked Strangford for encouraging the British naval commander in the Levant to assist the Turkish fleet, and he insisted that the British-owned ports on the Ionian Islands should be closed to Turkish as well as Greek vessels. End quote. 
Metternich found Castlery a little tougher to cooperate with than he'd have liked, but the two could at least agree that interference in the war was a no-no. This would change, however, in 1822, with the ascendancy to the position of British Foreign Secretary of George Canning. Canning, much to Metternich's dismay, was a member of the British arm of the Friends of Greece, and Canning spoke enthusiastically for the kind of intervention that the majority of the British public had been clamouring for. Thus, Britain and Austria began to drift notably apart in the mid-1820s. Because Britain began to be directed towards a course of action Austria never fully agreed with. Dakin continues to note on this situation, with an interesting note on the duplicity of France in particular. Quote, Nevertheless, like Metternich, Castlery waited upon events, and so too did the French, but chiefly for the reason that being isolated and unprepared, they saw no immediate prospect of adventure in the East. Someday they might possibly align with Russia, in the hopes of stealing a march on Austria or England, but, having sensed that the Tsar was timid, and that even if he was bold he was likely to meet with opposition, they had turned down a Russian offer of a protectorate in the Maria, and waited for the situation to develop. End quote. Tsar Alexander I had held power in his autocratic state since 1801, and thus was one of the old statesmen from the Napoleonic order, who had experienced firsthand the danger of revolutionary ideals and the power they could generate when held in the right hands. Thus, he may well have been cautious evading the Greek cause, irrespective of the fact that it was logistically impossible while Britain held Mediterranean primacy, because the Tsar and his cabinet may well have feared the impact it would have had on the region, had Greeks and their neighbours been taught of the value of liberal and democratic ideals. Additionally, Alexander came under further pressure to put aside his aspirations for aiding Greece, at least in the full capacity that the Greeks desired, from Austrian Minister Metternich who, in the Council of Verona on October 20th, 1822, convinced the Tsar privately to forget the issue of armed intervention in Greece. Verona was the first official meeting of the Five-Way Alliance since the 1815 Congress of Vienna. It was highly revealing for a number of reasons. Also included in the week-long debates was the decision of all reps except Britain, so Russia, France, Prussia and Austria, to allow French forces to invade Spain and place the absolute monarch Ferdinand VIII on the Spanish throne, after his own parliament, or Cortes, had deposed him and placed him in custody. Britain's disapproval of such a blatant disrespect of sovereignty perhaps came as a surprise to the reps of the Verona Council. The Five-Way Alliance had been constructed to protect and preserve the so-called Old Order of Europe which basically meant the preservation of absolutist monarchies and the crushing of any populist sentiments or movements such as that seen in the Napoleonic France. Europe was, it seemed, desperately afraid that the contagious ideas of the Napoleonic era would erupt elsewhere again, and Russia's later crushing of the 1848 revolutions, where just such ideas were expressed in Austria, Prussia, France and elsewhere, should confirm the state of near paranoia that European statesmen lived in they did not want another Napoleon. This is why such a Greece, with its apparent desire for republican government and its own population uprooting the old Ottoman order, may have seemed like both a blessing and a curse to the Five-Way Alliance. 
Indeed, as we shall soon see, it was this belief that absolutism encourages stability, or at least that stability is encouraged by monarchy, that would cause the great powers to force a monarchy on Greece in 1831. It was perhaps the presence of societies within practically every state that contained an interested population that caused the most impact and would contribute notably towards the eventual Allied decision to get involved so suddenly and spectacularly in the Greek War. However, it is hard to appreciate fully what the Allies were going through during this time regarding the Greek crisis unless we examine the course of the Ottoman Greek War that erupted in 1821, seemingly out of nowhere. The declaration that Greece was to be a free nation came from the lips of Germanus of Patros on March 25, 1821. The events leading up to this event were hardly glamorous, as we have seen, and though the fleeky Eteria did make some headway from 1819 to 1821, it was hardly the body one could expect to lead an entire country and its people towards revolution against an age-old oppressor. And yet, even despite the stonewalling from the other great powers and their hidden agendas, the distance from a possible helpful America and the abundance of Turkish soldiers in the area, the Greeks seemed altogether prepared to fight. Walter Lacker, in his book Guerrilla Warfare, a historical and critical study, notes on the course of the war's initial years. Quote, Applying guerrilla methods, the Greeks contrived to liberate part of their country in the early part of the war. Later on, they tried to transform their bands into a regular army with the help of some European well-wishers. The results were disastrous. They suffered an almost unending series of defeats. The discipline, the drill, the organisational effort was not to the liking of the Greeks, who were saved in the end from almost certain defeat by the military intervention of the great powers. But nor is it certain that they would have fared any better had they stuck with their original tactics. They succeeded in the first stage of the war because their attacks took the Turks by almost complete surprise. Once the element of surprise was gone and the Turks had dispatched new forces in the field, the Greeks simply had no answer. Happily for them, their war differed in some respects from other such campaigns, and this helped to some extent to restore the balance. The distinctive element lay in sea power. Whatever their weaknesses on land, the Greeks proved more than a match for the Turks at sea. End quote. A growing trend of the war would be the Greek domination of the countryside, through the guerrilla methods as described by Lacker, and the Turks' withdrawal into the various fortresses dotted around that countryside. Sometimes, if the Turks were unsupported by reinforcements, or if their place of refuge could not be accessed by sea, the Greeks would attempt to besiege them. Other times, when the Turks were holed up in a fortress supplied or relying on resupply by sea, a naval exchange would occur between the Greeks and Turks. From this, we can see the importance of the Turks' naval forces. Without the naval power, the Ottomans would have been powerless to aid their beleaguered forces or land reinforcements elsewhere. Thus, those same societies we've come across in the great power states that promised aid to the Greeks usually proclaimed the impact one could make if he only sent a few ships to wipe out the Turkish fleet in the area, or if he ferried the Greeks to better positions, or even if a grand naval exchange were to destroy the Ottoman naval presence in the Mediterranean. But Lacker also makes note of another unfortunate characteristic of the war, which we'll soon have to come into contact with. Quote, the Greek War of Independence was almost genocidal in character, the Greeks' premise being that if they exterminated the Turkish communities in their midst, they would eventually be masters of their own home. 
the Greeks had the enthusiastic support of most of Christian Europe, and there was a steady flow of volunteers and money. End quote. While I respect Lacker's opinion and feel he gives a good overall scope of events, this extract here is a good example of bias within history. For one, Lacker fails to even mention the Turkish massacres that precipitated the desperate and bloody Greek response. Second, the Greeks did not have the support of the governments of Christian Europe, merely private individuals and organisations such as the foreign and numerous friends of Greece societies we have seen. I feel it is important to mention these issues I have with Lacker's coverage of events because it demonstrates how easily one can gather an inaccurate picture of events. That said, it's not about who massacred who first. The point is that both sides were guilty of atrocities, and the important thing is to bear that in mind. Certainly, the portrayal of the Greeks as victims of a cruel Ottoman oppressor did wonders for the pro-Greek supporters and their propaganda campaign, and foreign observers seemed less willing to convey to their own media the idea that both Greeks and Turks were capable of such heinous crimes. This is a point addressed by Angelo Repussi. Quote, Greek supporters often portrayed the Greeks as a brave Christian people fighting a despotic foe. For ages, committee members proclaimed the Greeks had been trampled under the feet of their enslavers. They had witnessed the devastation of their soil, the destruction of their churches, and the massacre of their children. News reports of Turkish atrocities, such as the massacre at Chios, where the entire male population of the island was executed, and the surviving women and children sold into slavery, lent credence to the claim that this was a war for survival. The Aurora General Advertiser asked, Where is the American whose bosom does not swell with indignation at such barbarity, whose hand would not strike in such a cause? End quote. The massacre at Chios that is alluded to here was such a tragic event that saw perhaps the most widely publicised example of a Turkish miscalculation yet seen in the war. There would be many others, but it was this event in particular that turned public attention away from their own affairs and towards the plight of the Greeks. And although every Turk did not kill Greeks as those Turks had killed Greeks on Chios, the now rapidly growing public sentiment and anger that their governments remained idle became harder and harder to keep quiet. To demonstrate the vast gulf of opinion on the Greek-Turk war, I'll pull in a quotation from the Turkish Coalition of America, which is supposed to foster understanding of Turkish-American issues through public education. A catchy slogan for a not-so-catchy opening paragraph on the war itself, in which the author of the online article writes, quote, Greeks under Ottoman rule were free to observe their faith, maintain their language, traditions, and cultural identity. The fact that Greek culture was maintained during the 400 years of Ottoman reign over what is today Greece is testament to the legendary tolerance of the Ottoman Empire over the different people it ruled not to the perseverance of Greek culture. The Greek rebellion against the Ottoman Empire began on the Peloponnese on the 6th of April 1821, with the slogan, Not a Turk shall remain in the Maria, which inspired indiscriminate and murderous actions against all Muslims. The patriotic cry of the revolution, proclaimed by the Greek Archbishop Germanos, was, Peace to the Christians, respect to the consuls, death to the Turks. According to the British writer William St. Clair, the savage passion for revenge soon degenerated into a frenzied delight in killing and horror for their own sakes. End quote. In contrast, the official Greek website on the Chios massacre notes of the event's results. Quote, on Good Friday, 
31st of March 1822, the temple of Pangea Torlotis was burnt down and the Turks were ordered to start the bloodshed and burning down the town. Starting from that day and for four whole months, Turk converts from the minor Asian coasts arrived in the island and they massacred, they looted and they plundered. It is estimated that 40,000 irregular troops arrived in the island that period. Pasha Vahid announced the Sultan's order for all infants up to age 3 years old, boys and men aged over 12 years old, and women aged over 40 years old to be killed. He also ordered for girls and women from 30 to 40 years old, and boys aged from 3 to 12 years old to be captured. Only those who accepted to be Islamized managed to save their lives. End quote. Whatever one's opinion on the events, the fact is that the incident at Chios did happen, and it lit a fire under the European statesmen who, fearing a Russian success and subsequent expansion, were hesitant to act against the Turks directly should it result in their collapse. This is the impression I got from my sources, which should give you an idea of how far the Ottomans had fallen. At one stage in history, the Ottomans struck an indescribable terror into the hearts of all of Europe. Now, it seemed, the Ottoman Empire existed only because the very West it once threatened with absolute destruction allowed it to exist. A change soon began to occur then in the European camp, as the Greeks began to seize the Maria, or Peloponnese, as well as the major cities of mainland Greece. Originally, the Greek revolt had been meant to coincide with the simultaneous revolts against Ottoman rule in Serbia and Wallachia, but these revolts petered out and their champion and chief coordinator, along with the Greek revolt, was Alexandros Ypsilantis, a revolutionary who would become the head of the Feliki Eteria in 1820, only to become isolated and friendless and die in 1828. It was Metternich who began a series of events in 1822, when he petitioned the Tsar to have Kapodistris removed as the joint foreign minister of Russia. Tsar Alexander was informed, perhaps erroneously, that Capodistrius was a secret member of the Carbonari, a revolutionary Italian group responsible for the nationalist Italian agitations against Austria's North Italian possessions. In that same year, George Canning, a member of the British Friends of Greece Society, became foreign minister in place of Castlery, with momentous consequences for Greece. Indeed, the years leading up to this triple change of office culminating in the ascendancy of Nicholas I to the throne of Russia, was a complicated spiderweb of diplomatic intrigue, centering around Metternich's desire to influence the Tsar so as to prevent a Russian declaration of war on the Ottomans in the name of Greece, while also revolving around Metternich's interesting distrust of Capodistrius, who, as we have seen, had little love for the Feligiateria, and was perfectly comfortable to tow the Russian foreign policy line. A kind of dance thus ensued, Metternich couldn't persuade the Tsar to remove Capodistrius by mail or message, since most of these notes went through Nesselrod, Capodistrius's partner in the Russian Foreign Office, and since Nesselrod decided to not pass the info on. Metternich remained convinced that Capodistrius was up to something though, and that, if nothing was done to remove him, he would pull the Tsar into the very loud pro-war camp in Russia. Thus, Metternich believed he could persuade the Tsar of Capodistrius's treachery only if he could meet him face to face. Capodistrius must have believed this in some way too, because while Metternich now tried to set up some kind of conference, the fruits of which would be the Council of Verona which we have covered already, Capodistrius tried to impress upon the Tsar the importance of not leaving Russia. 1822 thus saw both Capodistrius and Metternich play their hands. 
Capodistris was able to convince the Tsar to send reps to Vienna and London to try and patch things up and clear the air that way, while Metternich insisted he choose the reps. For Metternich, this was all about buying time, and what is interesting about this time period is what exactly was at stake for the two statesmen. Metternich wanted to convince the Tsar that war with the Ottomans, a war Russia would almost certainly win decisively, was bad for Russia, and tried to stall for time so that the Greeks would be crushed and the Russians would no longer have a pretext for acting in the region. Capodistrius, on the other hand, merely wanted to preserve his job, and was more concerned with conducting the Tsar's desired foreign policy. He was not nearly as influential, it is clear now, as Metternich believed he was, for Alexander would never change his stance with respect to Greece, and certainly would never have been brought out of his conservative, revolution-fearing stance by the half-Venetian, half-Greek Capodistrius. Once he got his own choice for a Russian rep to appear in Vienna, Metternich delighted in delaying the poor man, and even tricking him into believing he was playing an important role in affairs. In actual fact, as Douglas Dakin notes, this Russian rep, account Tatitschev, was merely a puppet of Metternich from the beginning. Quote, Tatischev, a somewhat erratic diplomat of poor character, arrived in Vienna in March 1822. He probably carried divergent instructions for Nesselrod and Capodistrius, and he proved to be easy game for Metternich, who kept him talking on and off for a period of two months, much to the delight of Tatischev, who, himself, could have dashed in Viennese society, and who imagined he was playing a decisive role. Metternich, as he himself confessed, was out to gain time while the Turks mended their 1822 campaign. End quote. While Metternich thus called for a conference, and eventually the Tsar agreed, Capodistrius implored the Tsar to see him in person so that he could try and persuade Alexander what Metternich was up to. Capodistrius, it was true, did not wish to see Greece destroyed by the Turks, an outcome which was likely by mid-1822 as the Turks gained the upper hand. And the impression I get is that Capodistrius gradually seems to have become swayed by the dual combination of Metternich's meddling and cynical diplomacy and the increasing pressure put on his homeland. Dakin explains what happened next. Quote, Capodistrius intimated to Nesselrod that he intended to seek a private audience of the Tsar and asked to be excused from anything to do with Metternich's proposed conference. But Alexander was in no hurry to see Capodistrius in private. Not until June did he send for him. On this occasion, Capodistrius reminded the Tsar of a discussion of Paris in 1815, where he himself had spoken of the difficulties that were likely to arise from his Greek origins. He went on to say that he could no longer reconcile Russian policy, which was hostile to Greece, with the needs of his own country. Alexander was sympathetic. In that position, he would feel the same, but he could not change his policy. The only course for Russia was cooperation with the Allied powers. Capodistrius should not resign. Better he should deal with other matters, and then after a little while take indefinite leave. When at length, on August 12th, 1822, they parted, the Tsar was gracious. He asked Capodistrius to send him news about himself. The following September, Capodistrius left St. Petersburg. He travelled in Germany and in Switzerland, and in early December settled down in Geneva. He took the Tsar at his word, wrote to him, and surely hoped that one day Alexander would recall him to court and change his policy. End quote. Thus, Capodistrius spent the new year of 1823 likely lamenting his newly unemployed status, 
little knowing that by January 1828 he would land in his homeland and revolutionise not just the way the Greeks fought, but the way they would see themselves and their place in the world. With Kapodistrias out of the way, Metternich probably believed he was doing the right thing, and that now Russia would not be influenced to make war against a vulnerable Turkey and put it in a position of predominance in European power politics. However, Metternich failed to account for a possible change in leadership that did occur in Russia when Tsar Nicholas replaced Tsar Alexander in December 1825. But even before then, George Canning, Britain's foreign secretary since August 1822, had made some serious waves and ruffled Austrian feathers by granting its tacit support to the rebellion. Huge loans were approved to the Greeks by London, to the extent that one could claim Britain was financing the Greek revolt. Canning had said, as early as Christmas 1822, that he had intended his treatment of the Greeks to take a drastically different course from that of his predecessor in Castlery and this became an increasingly easy course to justify, once Turkish actions, such as the massacre at Chios, became public and widely circulated knowledge. Even if the position of the Tsar had not changed hands to the younger, more ambitious and idealistic Nicholas, it is the belief of this humble potter that, one way or another, Britain's combined public and governmental status would have warranted a kind of military response eventually. And that was all part of Metternich's gamble. He had originally hoped that, although it was likely that someone would intervene somewhere down the line, the Turks would overcome the Greeks before that could happen, and make any real difference. Particularly, as we have seen, Metternich feared Russian involvement, and hoped that the Turks would crush the Greeks before Russia could use the Greeks as justification for getting involved. But the war was simply not ending. The Greeks appeared committed to total war with the Turks, and were spurred on by the involvement of Britain and America, and the eventual belief that real military intervention would follow. The Turks, meanwhile, were able to continue the war only at great financial and political cost. The eyes of the world were upon them and judged them harshly over their treatment of the Greeks, while uprisings in that entire region of the Balkans crippled, at least initially, the Turks' ability to wage effective war. They were making progress, but the Greek efforts, particularly at sea, continued to frustrate their attempts to bring the troublesome region towards a peaceful conclusion. Even having said that, though, the cause of Philhellenism was beginning to wane in England, a fact noted by Virginia Penn in her other invaluable article, this time in the exclusively English contributions towards the Greeks, entitled Philhellenism in England. In this particular extract, Penn notes on the findings of a Philhellene from Geneva named John Gabriel Aynard, who had done much to advance the cause of the Greeks on the continent, only to discover that Britain by the mid-1820s appeared to be becoming disinterested in the Greek cause. Quote, A Philhellene from Geneva, John Gabriel Aynard, who had done much on the continent to further the cause of Greece, was grieved to observe the trend in England. He wrote to Sir James Mackintosh to try to secure British cooperation with the French and Swiss committees then active. He analysed the English attitude accurately when he attributed indifference to number 1. Disgust at the deplorable results of the two Greek loans number 2. Inexplicable accidents to the steamboats they had lent number 3. Reports of intestine discords between Greek chiefs number 4. Injury to trade caused by Greek pirates The last cause was at least as serious as any of the others. British cargoes had suffered much loss from this constantly growing menace. 
and the Greek government apparently either could not or would not put a stop to it. Many people were inclined to believe the latter version. For these various reasons, the Greek Revolution had irreparably lost its glamour and appeal to many persons, and practically nothing more was done in England to assist this country, although a few additional volunteers went out to fight. End quote. So what changed then, to eventually provoke an armed intervention on behalf of Britain, France and Russia? Tsar Nicholas was seen as canning as someone he could reason with, and he wasted no time in sending a letter and then the Duke of Wellington to him to arrange an accord on Greece, which produced the St. Petersburg Protocol on the 4th of April 1826. This protocol agreed for joint mediation by the Russo-British reps over the war, and on the 7th of October that year, the Ottoman Sultan signed the Ackerman Convention, whereby Russia received from Turkey the reassurance that it would grant independence to its Danubian principalities, particularly Serbia. The problem was that while the Greeks, urgently in need of assistance by late 1826, wholly wished for aid and formally applied to the great powers to apply the kind of mediation promised in the St. Petersburg Protocol, the Turks, aided by their Egyptian vassal, continued the fighting. It was more this act of disrespect towards treaties they had created that appeared to have pushed the now joint Russia-Brit efforts over the edge. Recognising the Ottomans' refusal to budge, a new Treaty of London was created on the 6th of July 1827, whereby Greece would be created an independent state under Ottoman suzerainty. This was seen as a good compromise, and it was believed that such a settlement would finally cease the fighting. However, the Ottomans were ravaging the Greeks on land and at sea, thanks to the help from their aforementioned Egyptian vassal, particularly their commander, Ibrahim Ali, and they continued to ignore the provisions of the treaty. The Americans, too, were highly unhappy at this kind of compromise, since it hinted to them that the Greeks would not be free after all, a point echoed by Angelo Repussi in her much-quoted article, The Cause of the Greeks, Philadelphia and the Greek War for Independence, 1821-1828. Quote, on the 6th of July, England, France and Russia signed the Treaty of London, whereby the three signatories offered to mediate between Greece and Turkey. The treaty also called for the establishment of Greece as an autonomous but tributary state under the Ottoman suzerainty. In addition, a secret article provided that if the Ottoman government refused mediation after a month, the Allies would exert pressure on the Turks to comply. In Philadelphia, news of the treaty evoked a cold response. Zachariah Polson, editor of the Polson's American Daily Advertiser, expressed considerable grief and sorrow over the prospect of European interference. After all the sufferings and hardships Greece had endured in six years of fighting, Polson felt that the Greeks were to become again a nation of slaves and remain subjects of the Sultan. End quote. However, the secret clause enabling the Allied powers to intervene if Turkey would not accept the terms of the treaty made all the American concerns invalid, because the Ottomans did not accept the treaty, and the Allied powers were thus forced, in their respective minds, to intervene militarily. This culmination of years of politicking and angling for a better strategic position in Greece is covered by Virginia Penn in her article, Philhellenism in England. Quote, The anomalous situation created by the activities of the Philhellenes in both Greece and England in the face of declared neutrality and proclamations to curb them lasted until the 20th of October 1827, when an untoward event occurred. The British, French and Russian fleets became involved with the Turkish in the Battle of Navarino, 
and at last official intervention took the place of private. Philhellenism, as a movement, was dead in England, but the government had taken its place. End quote. The complete annihilation of the Turkish-Egyptian fleet in the Battle of Navarino on October 20, 1827 was a turning point for the Greeks and for Europe as a whole. With the Ottoman ships at the bottom of the sea, an international accord was forced on the Ottomans, which the Sultan still refused to accept, believing that by buying for time, his entrenched 40,000 soldiers in the Greek mainland would have a better chance of eventual success. Meanwhile in France, the complete rejection by the French public of the previous Conservative government launched a new liberal, populist government into power, and that government made the decision to land a force of 13,000 soldiers in Greece in order to force the Ottomans out. This decision was wildly popular among the French public, but it represented a serious escalation of the situation, as well as a dramatic failure of British and Austrian diplomacy. The three powers also removed their reps from Istanbul, to the further chagrin of the Sultan, and he further raised the stakes by repudiating the terms of the Ackerman Convention and closing the Dardanelles off to Russian shipping in particular. For Tsar Nicholas of Russia, this was exactly the pretext he'd been longing for, and Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire for the 11th time in history on the 4th of April 1828. The Russians then proceeded to achieve the sweeping victories so feared by the other powers in Europe, and Metternich would have likely been doing some serious fingernail biting once he learned that the Russians were merely 60 kilometres from Istanbul in late 1829. With the enemy so close and with panic on the streets, the Sultan agreed to terms, and what followed was the Treaty of Adrianople on September 14, 1829, whereby the Sultan ceded much land around the Black Sea to Russia, including Georgia and the Danubian principalities, which Russia now occupied. But the treaty also included the promise of the Sultan to establish the kind of independent Greece alluded to in the previous Treaty of London of 1827. In the London Protocol of 1829, it was agreed that the new Greek state would remain a part of the Ottoman Empire by law, but it would be internally sovereign and control its own affairs. Under the prodding of Capodistrius, though, he had returned to the country in early 1828 after he was informed, while living in Geneva, that he had been elected as its president, Britain and France turned away from this idea of a Greek vassal state and came to favour a completely free Greece instead. So back everyone went to establish another London Protocol in March of 1830, and from this agreement, Greece was established as a completely sovereign state in Europe. This undoubtedly drew the ire of the Ottomans, but there was little the Sultan could do at this point. His armies depressed from years of fighting a war in vain, and his navies thoroughly defeated, he was left with no choice but to support the Allied decision, confirming his state's position as the sick man of Europe yet again. Although the London Protocol of 1830 had called for a monarchy to rule over Greece, a byproduct of the Congress of Vienna which upheld that monarchies were more stable, Capodistrius continued to rule the country as its president until his assassination on October 9, 1831, after he had ordered the imprisonment of a particularly rebellious family member from the Mani Peninsula, the Sender Peninsula that just out of the Peloponnese, and that family had responded in kind. Thus, a new conference was called on Greece, mainly to establish a monarchy in the country, but also to ensure the secession of hostilities once and for all since pirates and deserted Ottoman soldiers had continued to create the appearance of a Greek war zone, even the actual war had supposedly ended. 
Thus, most historians date the official end of this war as August 30th, 1832, when the final London Protocol reiterated the borders of a post-war Greece and confirmed its independence and monarchy, ending 400 years of Ottoman rule, leaving a weakened Ottoman Empire, a thoroughly empowered Russian one, and the five-way Holy Alliance established in the 1815 Congress of Vienna in a de facto shambles. An important outcome of the Greek War of Independence was of course the creation of a new independent Greek state, but also the confirmation of Europe's fears that any weakening of the ailing Ottoman Empire would benefit Russia. Thus, the joint European policy followed the Greek War of opposition to the bettering of Russia by weakening Turkey. Russia, after 1832, had acquired its firm position as the real enemy and danger to Europe, and, at least in Britain's mind, would hold this position for the next 70 years, until an even greater threat emerged in the form of a resurgent, aggressive, and powerful Germany. Thus the Congress of Vienna in 1815, where Metternich had tried so hard to create a Europe-wide alliance that would stand the test of time, broke apart almost as soon as divergent interests emerged between the five powers. The fact that Metternich's brainchild created a peaceful Europe for merely five years until war broke out between the Greeks and Ottomans should not overshadow the fact that, for those five years, Europe was closer than it had ever been and would ever be for the next two centuries until the Berlin Wall fell in 1991 to a unified, cooperative and peaceful coexistence. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. No extra bit to add on the end of this podcast this time, since we got a bit carried away with Metternich and friends, and this podcast has already dragged on long enough. So I will say to you, good day. But before we go, a small reminder to check out Benjamin Ashwell's podcast on the Italian unification, the first episode of which should be released while you listen to this. Simply search for it in Google or iTunes, and expand your history podcast library today. I promise you, you won't regret it. My name is Zach, and you have been listening to When Diplomacy Fails, Episode 23, The Greek War of Independence. Thanks. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.